Listener Production. All right, are we good? Dean, if I don't look attractive, you're dead to me. Yeah, keep that in. That's funny. <laughs> keep me saying it was funny. <laughs> this is how the sausage is made, my friends. <laughs> Consummate professional. All right, my dulcet-toned Adonis. Take it away. Take it away. Hello, Gistners, and welcome back for another episode of Just the Gist. And when I say Gistners, I am also including you, Mr. Stuart Semple, who told me he's going to be listening every week from here on out. Uh, Welcome back to another episode of Just the Gist, a weekly-ish podcast where Rosie Waterland and I give you just the gist of what you need to know so that you'll then be able to bluff your way through a conversation at an upcoming dinner party and make it seem like you know just about everything about this particular topic. And we can Um, almost go to dinner parties again. uh, What's the number restriction up to now? 10, Um, 20? In New South Wales, it's 50. 50? Oh, wow. I know. Okay, well, you'll be able to hold court with a fascinating tale. This week, Rosie Waterland is going to take us through... Well, before I tell you, I want to say you were quite clearly just flirting with Mr. Stuart Semple, and I liked. I liked how um, (laughs) how upfront that was. Oh, (laughs) lights, camera, action, and Jacob without a stick of makeup on. (laughs) Look, are you trying to pick up via our podcast? Anyway, you can get it, girl. Wouldn't that be romantic Wouldn't if that it just... did end up coming to pass? Uh, but no, Stuart's wonderful and he sent some really nice messages saying how much he enjoyed that episode, um, which I could not believe he actually took the time to listen to. But um, I know. I want to talk about yeah. it in breaking news. So I'll tell you that this week's topic is, oh, my God. Okay, I've been so excited. I've been wanting to do this one for a really long time, but I always put it off because I'm so obsessed with it and I knew it was just going to take me a lot. Like I was doing it for a few hours yesterday and then I was doing it for a few more hours this morning. (sighs) And because we missed last week and we agreed to do two this week, I figured, well, this can be the extra special, uh, little extra episode we're doing this week for our gistners. Mm-hmm. This week's topic is the 1989 Oscars, otherwise known as the worst Oscars ceremony in history. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Oh my God. It is so good, my friend. It um, They basically said was almost the thing that made them think they wanted to cancel the Oscars altogether forever. <laughs> That's a big call. So it was pretty bad. It involves Rob Lowe and dancing tables and a whole lot of bad karaoke songs. You and I are going to love it. But first, shall we do... Breaking news, breaking news. I got the scoop, a C, X-ray, X-ray. Read all about it. Breaking news. Um, oh, can I just say, a couple of um, people have sent through, I don't know if I've said this yet, their kids doing the breaking news theme. And no. it is the cutest <laughs> effing thing like I've ever, because I guess they listen to it in the car or whatever together. And mm. um, a couple of parents have videoed their kids doing the breaking news theme to show how much they love it. 
That is super cute. Ask it the parents so if you can cute. Um, get their consent to post that on social as well. Oh, you know, you know what I should do? I should ask their permission to maybe let their kids do the theme song next week and then none of the basic Susans can say they hate it because that's mean to a little kid. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, Susans. <laughs> you finally won the war. Well done. Yeah, so anyway, breaking news. Stuart Semple, our new biggest fan and your future boyfriend, <laughs> according to you, <laughs> in your crossed. dreams. Um, <laughs> I cannot believe how much people, A, loved that episode. Well, I can believe it because it was my favourite episode ever. But B, how much they jumped on the um cause okay, on the okay bean boy cause like the <laughs> i'm so surprised that i did not get blocked on instagram by anish kapoor because they were all tagging me they were all tagging you they were all tagging mm. just the gist okay bean boy just here because of rosie and jake <laughs> like there was so <laughs> many of them and i was like oh my god he's gonna block us and then i would be so happy but um he hasn't yet He's probably wondering why he suddenly got an influx of Instagram notifications. Although I doubt he even checks his Insta. I don't think he really understands how to use it. If you have a scroll through it, I feel like it's very closely managed by someone on his team, apart from the one time that he went rogue with a little pot of pink paint and his middle finger, Um, which was um, maybe an (laughs) error in judgment on his part. I love that he's left it up there, though, despite all those thousands and thousands of comments. I know. I also love that Stuart Semple listened to that episode, loved it, shared it. And so now we have so many more gistners. I started getting followed by all these trendy artists on Instagram (laughs) who could possibly answer the question, what is art? (laughs) So maybe we should have an episode where we get them all on. But looks like we've got a lot of new gistners, a lot from the UK, a lot from the art community. That's fantastic. I hope they're not disappointed that we're going from the art community and the art world to just nosedive into something about the Oscars. Oh, yeah. No, I absolutely picked like the most low-level tacky thing I could find this week to really just (laughs) show them both ends of the spectrum we look to on just the gist. Um, Also, uh, breaking news, you know, which is things that I find important. It was my birthday on the weekend. Happy birthday, honey. Thank you. 34. What was the highlight? Um, Well, I had dinner with my fam bam, made my own birthday cake because, as you know, I have that new baking obsession. Mm -hmm. So that was actually, like, I told people I made my own birthday cake and they went, oh. And I was like, no, it was my request. (laughs) So I spent a day doing that the day before and um, then I made my um, mum go to Aldi early in the morning and push all the Karens out of the way because it was cast iron day at Aldi. So I made her get me all the cast iron stuff because I'm super into cooking now. And um, then that night I went to dinner with Caleb and it was lovely because we could go out to dinner. Oh, and also do you want to know what Caleb got me? What? (laughs) I swear to God, I thought he asked you. It was so, okay, because so everyone knows we haven't been dating, oh, we've been dating six months now, but we sort of got pushed into living together because of lockdown, which we Mm. didn't expect. Um, And so I said to him, oh, look, you don't have to get me a birthday present. You can just pay for dinner. And anyway, the day before my birthday, he like, 
said he had to go somewhere and he was very cagey about it. And and I asked if I could come because I thought he was going to the supermarket because where else do we go right now? And he was like, no, you can't come. And he got very weird and he was all like, mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I guess he's doing getting a present or something. And so then I started to get excited because I was like, I told him not to get a present, but clearly he's getting a present. And so I was like, ooh. And so he goes off and he comes back and he's asking for wrapping paper and doing And I was like, okay. And so then the next morning I wake up, it's my birthday. He's like, do you want your present? And I was like, okay. Like by this point I was like, I've got a present. Like Mm. I was super into it. And so I unwrap (laughs) it. So the first thing I notice is it's in an Aesop bag. You know, Aesop, they do like skincare and soap and all Mm, that stuff. Fancy hand wash, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, well, what is what would he know to get me from Aesop? How does he even know Aesop is a shop? Like, this is not, I was like, he must have talked to Jacob. I was like, has Jacob told him to buy me something? But then I was like, I don't think Jacob is an Aesop person. I was like, what is this? Mm. And so I'm like, oh, this doesn't look like jewellery, but I guess I'll keep going. And so I opened (laughs) the bag and inside he had bought me a very fancy Aesop bottle of post-poo drops. In instances where vigorous activity has occurred in the bathroom, dilute several drops of this carefully crafted product in the toilet bowl after flushing for the benefit of all subsequent visitors, (laughs) i.e. Caleb. Because, listen, he's been complaining about my stinky poops. And I said to him, Caleb, okay, fine, this is funny. Like, well done. Mm, Like, yes. Nailed it. Like, smart, clever, good, solid burn. Hilarious. Mm. But then I was like, but why Aesop? I said, who told you to go to Aesop? And he said, oh, I asked around. Like, I, and I said, what the hell do you mean you asked around? I said, who are you talking to about my stinky shits? And he's like, (laughs) no one, none of your business. And I said, I think it is my business. I said, please tell me it was Jacob. I said, please tell me Jacob recommended this. And then I called you and asked you and you were like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. I haven't talked to him. So now I know that my boyfriend is talking to people about my stinky poops, getting advice about expensive Aesop drops to put in the toilet, which by the way, work really well. And um, I don't know who he's talking to about it. <laughs> How mortifying. Oh, my God. I so hope we end up getting sponsored by Aesop and their uh, uh, post-poo drops. drops. Um, poo-poo-y, yeah. <laughs> um, happy so, to take that for a test run at some point. I will confess he has spoken to me about your bowel movements, but at no point <laughs> did the word Aesop come up. What did he say? When? <laughs> You'd left the room briefly and he was just giving me a rundown on what it's like to live with you. And, of course, that was top of mind. (laughs) I can't help it. I've had certain surgeries. I don't have as much small intestine as other people. So I don't Mm. have as much time for things to reach their final stage of things. So it's all a bit stinky and he can't act like he doesn't fart all the time and it doesn't stink bad. Like he honestly thinks his stick, his shit doesn't stink. And I started singing to him from that outcast song, you know, I know you like to think your shit don't stink, but I started singing that to him and I thought I was so hilarious. And because he has zero idea about pop culture or anything that's from after 1955, he looked at me and he was like, are you having a stroke? What is that? What are you singing? Like, he didn't know what it was. (laughs) So that was my romantic gift. 
correct. And apparently, well, what I'm taking from this is that you get what you pay for. Because if it was, you said what, forty five bucks? Yeah, he said it was like forty five dollars. No, it's really good. You drop the drops in, and the water goes all like cloudy and swirly, like a witch's brew. And you're like, ooh, and then it does mm. smell quite nice. Mm. Well, happy to accept a free bottle of that from anyone who wants to send I it my though, way. I think the moral of this story is I have recently uncovered that my boyfriend is singing out loud about my stinky shits all over town <laughs> and I don't know who knows what anymore. <laughs> Jesus, please. We'll just put a, a blanket mystery. thank you out there to whoever is responsible for you getting that gift from Caleb, which, by the way, is comedic genius in its own It is right. comedic genius. I know. It was a solid burn because I really was excited about getting a gift and I couldn't stop laughing. It was really funny. <laughs> What's new with you? What's breaking news in your world? Uh, well... You might be surprised to know, especially based on, I think, the first and only time that I met your nephew, Muhammad, and terrified the daylights out of him, <laughs> and he went and hid behind a nightstand <laughs> saying, I'm a scaled, I'm a scaled. Oh, my God. No, guys, you don't understand. Jacob is a very imposing, a very handsome Adonis of a man. I do mean it when I say he is my dulcet-toned Adonis, but he is very tall and imposing in person. How tall are you, 6'3"? Six four. Six four. Okay. Mm. Tall, handsome, and he has the most perfect posture of anyone I've ever seen in my life. So you're six four, but you stand like you're seven foot. And you also just have this self-confidence and this air about you that's quite <laughs> intimidating. And you walked into the room and Muhammad and you just went, Hello, Muhammad. And you're that's me trying to do your voice. <laughs> Hello, Muhammad. And he looked up at you immediately turned around to run, but there was nowhere to run because behind him was just the wall and the bedside table. <laughs> so he just crammed himself into the corner of the wall and the bedside table, <laughs> hid his face behind his hands and kept going, I'm a scared. I'm a scared. <laughs> this is the effect Jacob has on young children. Yeah, and then I don't make it any better when I then start cackling really, really loudly. <laughs> um, but with all of that in mind, the fact that I don't really like kids, kids don't like me, I actually spent a full day yesterday babysitting for the first time in my life. And when I say Ooh. babysitting, uh, Myra's little daughter, Sadie, who is just oh, the cutest little Myra. thing in the How world. How old is yes. Sadie now? She'll be two years old in September. And so you spend an entire day looking after a not even two-year-old? Yes, correct. However, um, I need to have a little asterisk next to the word babysit uh, because the widow Stanley's up here in Byron with me and she was taking care of any nappy changes and any feedings that needed to happen. So I basically was just entertaining the child for the day. So you did the but fun stuff and your mum did all the hard stuff? Correct. Correct. But that's a big step for me. Right. Spending that much time with someone so who's what'd under the So what would you do? Watch a lot of RuPaul's? <laughs> I would have loved that, but she insisted on Peppa Pig. Ew. Yeah. How dare so she? She'll grow out of that. So did you come um, out at the end of the day thinking you might want kids one day? Oh, God, no. No, no, no. I <laughs> did, however, develop even deeper respect for mothers, especially working mothers during this lockdown. It must be absolutely impossible for anyone to get 
anything yeah. done um, when you've got a kid that's wanting constant attention and especially if it's a cute one that you want to give attention back. So mm. much respect to all of you mothers and fathers out there who've tried to parent and work at the same time in the same place because it would be a feat if you managed to get anything done. Hey, man, my older sister, five kids. Oh, nuts. Most of them under five. It's cray-cray. <laughs> it is cray-cray. And I'm also loving that one. So there's the two twins who are um, one, and one of them is clearly shaping into, like, the alpha twin, and she's really bullying the other one. Mm. Like, she'll, like, sit on her head, and when they're in their cot together, she'd, like, if she's still asleep, she just slaps her until she wakes up, and she, like, pulls her hair <laughs> and pushes her over, and, and the other one's just so placid and lovely and takes it. So their little personalities are really developing and one of them is quite Machiavellian. Okay, I look forward to meeting them at some point. But yeah, I have no idea how Rhiannon does it I because know, I only did it for like nine hours and by the end of it I was like, oh my God, I need a drink and I'm just going to go have a bath by myself and yeah. no one talk to me for the next Solid few hours. Solid chunk. Solid yeah. chunk, my friend. So, according to what uh, breaking news is important to us, that was breaking news in the world last <laughs> week. <laughs> breaking news. Look, the world is a cluster F right now, and I just we're not the people you know, who are qualified to talk. We about are not it. the people qualified to talk about it. So, there's just some funny things from our universe breaking. <gasps> Okay, you ready for this? <laughs> I so I know absolutely nothing about this. So you said oh, 1989 okay. Oscars ceremony. The 1989 Oscars has gone down in history as the worst, most embarrassing Oscars of all time. Uh -huh. um, I think a lot of people didn't really know about it because you know it was aired live on TV and then when did you ever really hear about it again? People mm. started uh, talking about it as like sort of pop culture legend when YouTube became a thing. So a couple years mm -hmm. after YouTube came out, somebody posted the infamous 12-minute opening number on YouTube and it got mm. watched a million times within 24 hours, which back in the early days of YouTube was massive and people mm. were like, how did this happen at the Oscars and none of us knew? And I think it's because the Oscars and all of Hollywood kind of made a silent pact to never speak of it again. Uh -huh. So the YouTube clip came out in like around 2007 and uh, people started talking about it again a couple years ago because it was the last ceremony that didn't have a host. And you know how a couple years ago they were like, oh, for the first time in 30 years we're not going to have a host. Mm -hmm. And everyone was like, well, this is going to be a disaster because the last time the Oscars didn't have a host, it was the infamous 1989 worst Oscars in history. So people started talking about it again a couple of years ago. And um, that's when everybody who was involved, um, you know, did a lot of interviews for like Vanity Fair and really there was sort of like a bit of an oral history of how it all went wrong and what happened. Mm -hmm. And so it's the last couple of years that everyone's really started um, talking about it. And mm -hmm. so I think I read a story about it like a couple years ago, went and watched the whole thing. Like I've watched the entire ceremony, which you can watch, um, mm -hmm. but I highly suggest watching the first 12 minutes, which is what everybody says just made the night descend into utter despair and darkness. <laughs> and so <laughs> I figured um, the best way to go through this is to just give you a complete recap of the opening number and mm -hmm. then we'll talk about 
how it came to be and what happened afterwards and whose careers were ruined, etc. Okay, so are you ready me for strapped this? in. Yes. <laughs> okay. Ooh, 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 ooh. This is going to be fun. <laughs> okay, so we open on a man is standing at the entrance to the theatre. So all the stars are inside. And he mm-hmm. goes, and now, ladies and gentlemen, one of the great legends of Hollywood. And everyone's like, oh, my God, like, who's it going to be? Like, oh, mm-hmm. my goodness. And he goes, here she is, back again, Miss Snow White. And then this woman <laughs> dressed as Snow White, like at a birthday party, like comes over to him and she goes and she has a voice kind of like the B-grade version of what Amy Adams did in Enchanted, like trying to do a Disney princess kind of ends up sounding like, um, uh, what's her name, uh, Gypsy Rose Blanchard, which you know I love <laughs> doing that voice. So she comes over mm. to him and she goes... Good evening, Mr. Archer. It is exciting <laughs> to be here tonight. I'm a little late, though. Can you tell me how to get to the theater? And he goes, that's easy, Snow. Just follow the Hollywood stars. And then the doors open and you think, oh, that's a cute gimmick because all the Hollywood stars are sitting inside, like all the famous people. Mm-hmm. No, the Hollywood stars are literally giant gold <laughs> glitter stars with legs. So these, <laughs> so these giants, so these dancers all have these just like pantyhosed legs with heels on and then this giant cardboard star. Like you don't even see their head. I don't know how they could see. It's a giant star <laughs> over their whole body and then it mm. kind of ends under their bum. So it's just stars with human legs. Mm. And so Snow White says, oh, follow the Hollywood star. And so she runs after these stars on human legs into the theatre as the orchestra starts to play. And meanwhile, inside, on stage, there's 20 more of the stars with human legs. But because, like, the dancers' bodies are all stuck inside these stars, they can't really do anything except sway side to side and, like, bob up Mm. and down. So there's just all these stars kind of, like, swaying on stage. (laughs) Of course, imagine how terrified they would be of falling over because they would be just like a turtle upside down on a shell. (laughs) How do they get upright again? And here's where we get our first uh, shot of the audience and already they look perplexed. Like they, the first person you can see is Sigourney Weaver who has her hand over her mouth like she's stifling laughter. Like she's like, what is <laughs> happening? Which is bad for Snow White because the next part of the number, she has to run from the back of the theatre where she entered through the crowd, um, like interacting with the crowd until she gets on stage. And while she's doing that, she's singing, I only have eyes for you, except the lyrics have been changed to, we only have stars for you. So she's going down through the crowd going, we only have stars for you. And she's going up to all these, like, famous people in the crowd, but none of them want her near them. Like they are all blocking her. They're like, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want a clip of this on the news. Get away from me. This is embarrassing. So every celebrity she goes up to looks so uncomfortable. Like Michelle Pfeiffer literally like snatches her hand away from her. Um, Tom Hanks, bless his heart. He he is, like looks like he's trying to be kind to her, but he mm. just cannot 
not like he can't not have a look of embarrassment on his face. Like he just looks mm. like he's in pain for her. And like he's literally the best actor in the world and he can't even fake that like this isn't a painful, embarrassing moment. So yeah. then she's like sort of tries interacting with people in the crowd who all are just like, please get away from me, all these famous mm. people. And then finally she reaches the stage and I think she's probably as relieved as the audience are. And she stands in the centre of the stage with all the stars with human legs bobbing up and down around her. And she says, good evening and welcome to the 61st Academy Awards. And you think, oh, okay, thank God it's done. That was just a little Mm. gimmick. She's introducing the show. But no, she keeps talking. (laughs) You're like, oh, God, it's not over. She goes... It's so exciting to be back in Tinseltown. I've missed it so. I remember the movie premieres at Grauman's Chinese Theatre and the wonderful stars and parties at the Coconut Grove. Why, I have so many wonderful, wonderful memories <laughs> <laughs> of my Hollywood. And then... <laughs> The orchestra starts playing Hooray for Hollywood as the stars with human legs run off stage and the curtain behind her lifts to reveal the Coconut Grove Club that she just (laughs) said she used to party at. I don't know. And so she runs off stage and all these dancers start dancing in pairs like... um, like a 1950s club, it kind of reminded me of, um, you know, in Dirty Dancing when all the dancers are dancing with the white rich people, like the the good dancing, not the dirty dancing. That's Confession, the kind of dancing I've never seen like the Dirty char- Dancing. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, excuse me? <laughs> this came up just the other day, actually. Um, yeah, I haven't sorry, seen Dirty Dancing ever. How have you not seen Dirty Dancing? Uh, I'm Good question. Don't have a good answer. I'm sorry. Yeah. I need to make it a priority for myself. I know the song. I think I've seen it 389 times. Can you you show it to me one day? Yes. I mean, I saw it when I didn't even understand Penny was getting an abortion. I just thought it was like she had a cold. Like I've been watching it from when I was very young. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) We all know now. Okay, well, put a pin in that because I'm on a roll describing this thing, but that is, Mm -hmm. I feel like you just lost part of your gay license. You've gone back to your green peas. (laughs) You're (laughs) not on your full license anymore. Okay, so anyway, it's kind of like 1950s charter, all these dancing. And so all these couples are dancing and they're acting like they're at this 1950s club. And then a voiceover goes, ladies and gentlemen, Merv Griffin. And then Merv Griffin (laughs) comes out and starts singing, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts, diddly dee. There they are all standing in a row. And there's these three giant coconut cocktails sitting on the bar, but then all of a sudden they rise up and they're actually giant (laughs) coconut cocktail hats on heads of dancers who start doing a Mm. conga line behind Merv while he sings, Mm. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. (laughs) And then he says, good evening and welcome to the fabulous Coconut Grove where every night is exciting. Meet the stars. And that's where you realise that all the guests who are sitting in the club are like 90-year-olds, and when he introduces them, we see that they're like stars of yesterday, and Mm. so, like, they're all going to get paraded on stage for exactly one second each. 
But like the thing is, they're all really old and most of them can barely walk. So they each need like a dancer on either side of them to lift them up out of their chair and like bring them to the center of the stage. And then because like they're stars and they haven't been in the spotlight for a while, a lot of them want longer than a second. So the dancers Mm. pull them to center stage and they wave and the audience is like, oh, there's, you know, whoever from 50 years ago. And then Mm. like they won't, they won't move. And you can see some of the dancers like having to like drag (laughs) Yank them off. (laughs) Yeah. And then um, (laughs) it's so undignified and awful. And so it's like Mr. Buddy Rogers and then some other movie I haven't heard of. And then they're like Mr. Tony Martin. But then clearly Tony Martin literally can't do anything but stand up and stand in one place. So then they're like, and his wife, Miss Sid Charisse. And then his wife, who's like 30 years younger than him, comes out and does a dance in the middle while Tony just stands and watches. And then she walks off and a couple of dancers just kind of pick him up and carry him off stage. And Is this where they got the idea for Weekend at Bernie's? <laughs> if, look, I don't want to be disrespectful because these are all at one point titans and legends of the industry, but that this is why it, it annoyed a lot of people. They said this was yeah. so undignified for them. Mm. So then Snow White comes back out, and I think only because the next few fa- famous people they mentioned can barely open their eyes, so she kind of steps in to dance and distract. And then, um, and then they kind of there's a couple of like dignified ones at the end who wave and are like, "Oh, I've made a mistake. I shouldn't have done this." And then they walk off. Mm. And then the old people are done. It's like we paid tribute to the legends. Let's boot them. <laughs> and then Merv Griffin turns to Snow White, who for some reason I think they've told her never be silent, even if you don't have a line. Just always be going. So like she's constantly making these weird noises. And then Merv Griffin turns to Snow and he goes, isn't it exciting, Snow? Well, it gets better. Here's your blind date, Rob Lowe. (laughs) 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 Rob Lowe walks out on stage in a tux and they play like this Prince Charming music. And you can tell the moment was meant to get laughs. Like it was meant mm. to be he's the biggest heartthrob of the time. It's kind mm. of like if they did it right now and they said, ladies and gentlemen, Liam Hemsworth, and it's meant to be funny, but it gets no laughs. Like at this point, everyone in the audience is like, we are not here for this. And so it kind <laughs> of gets a very obligated smattering of applause, which probably comes from the seat fillers who are like trained to clap when they're meant to. Mm. Um and she goes, Snow White goes, oh, Mr. Lowe, I'm such a fan. And he goes, really? Well, I'm a big fan of yours, Snow, but there's so much I'd like to know about you. And then two waiters <laughs> approach them each with a silver tray, and on those trays are microphones. And Rob Lowe and Snow White each pick up a microphone and launch into a duet of... <gasps> Tina Turner's Proud Mary. (laughs) 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 But then, but, but, the lyrics have been rewritten to, like, suit the occasion. So. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay, I also need to mention Rob Lowe cannot sing. And you (laughs) think it's a joke voice. Like, at first you're like, oh, he's making fun of the fact that he can't sing. But no, Mm. he's genuinely trying to sing. So I'm going to, I feel like the only way I can, I have to sing this for you because otherwise you just won't understand, okay? Mm. So they've changed the lyrics. 
So it starts with snow. Used to work a lot of Walt Disney, starring in cartoons every night and day. And then here's Rob. <laughs> but you said goodbye to Grumpy and Sleepy. Left the dwarfs behind, came to town to stay. Oh, my God. And then together, together. Big lights keep on burning, cameras keep on turning, rolling, rolling, keep the cameras rolling. And then, of course, I know, I know, keep it together, Jay. It's You think it's even, we're like three minutes into this, baby. Oh, God. Okay. And, of course, everyone knows that Proud Mary famously switches from that slow tempo bit at Mm. the start to fast tempo. So to make that transition, Rob goes, Keep the cameras rolling. (laughs) And then Snow goes, Uno, dos, tres, cuatro. And then everything goes, like, high tempo. Uh And then it goes, now you've made it big in the movies. Came to Hollywood, learned to play the game. You became a star as an animated mama. Earned yourself a place on the Walk of Fame. Big lights keep on burning. Cameras keep on turning. <laughs> and then, like, Snow and Rob kind of start doing sexy dancing together and the dancers with the giant cocktail hats come out, like the coconut cocktails. And thank God one of them can sing because this is the part of the song where you actually have to have a good voice. Mm. to carry it. So one of the dancers with the coconut cocktail on her head mysteriously has a microphone and starts doing all the heavy lifting of the Mm. song. And then as the song reaches its crescendo, you know the bit where it's like, okay, I'm not even joking. The tables and chairs that have been on stage the whole time suddenly stand up and have human legs of their own. And so the tables and chairs <laughs> start dancing. These heads pop out the top. So the head has a lamp on it and the table is like where their neck is and then there's chairs on either side and then they're dancing with their legs. <laughs> so all the tables and chairs start dancing. Um, the stars with legs come back out. I don't... Jacob... <laughs> Jacob, this is why it has gone down in history. (laughs) So they're like at that really, you know, that part. And Mm. it's like very high school spectacular. Like everyone who's been in it so far, the stars come out, the tables and chairs, the coconut hat ladies and Rob and Snow White and I think Merv's there and maybe they like chuck. Tony Martin back on and then whip him off again with one of those wooden hooks. And um, and then it kind of like gets to the bit in the song where it ends and they've all got their hands up in the air and they're all breathing heavily. Like it's very high school spectacular. Like, you know, the big, big finish. number, big yeah. finish. Yeah. And so you're like, thank God it's over. <laughs> and for the first time since the start, they cut to the crowd and again, and Robert Downey Jr. is sitting in the crowd and he looks like he doesn't just look mortified. He looks angry. Like he looks pissed <laughs> off that he's having to witness this. And sitting right in front of Robert Downey Jr. is Gregory mm. Hines, which I don't know if a lot of people would uh, know of him off the top of their head, but he is probably one of the best Broadway performers and dancers of all time. And mm. he just looks physically upset. Like he just looks 
like he's in pain watching it. Mm. And so they're all standing there <laughs> with their arms up like, we did it. And you're like, thank God, it's done. No. I'm, it's, it's don't still going. I don't want to speak too soon. I, okay, maybe I'm jinxing this. I'm just relieved that they didn't bring out seven little people dressed up oh, as no. the seven dwarves. There's no dwarves. Okay, there's good. No dwarves. <laughs> um, they mention them in the lyrics, but there's no dwarves. Because the uh-huh. whole point is she ran away from the dwarves to come to be a big mama in Hollywood. Didn't you listen right. to the lyrics I so generously provided you with? I need another pass through. Did you write down all of those lyrics? Did you transcribe that? Yes. Because it's <laughs> wow. part of the humour. I have to sing it to you with the lyrics that they rewrote to Proud Mary. Rolling, <gasps> oh, rolling, keep the cameras so rolling. You need to publish a written version so people can memorise it. Okay. So the tables with heads run off stage and the Coconut Grove backdrop lifts to reveal the Grauman's Chinese Theatre, and Rob Lowe walks Snow over to the box office and he stands there while she sings, Dreams come true, something, something, Chinese theatre, lots of mm. famous people everywhere you look, there's stars. And then Rob Lowe kisses her hand, like, really suggestively, like it's a bit mm. like, ew. And <laughs> then Rob and Snow, because this is very high school spectacular-esque, each take one part of the like theatre backdrop and they have to like, you know, work as stagehands. So they each pull Mm. the backdrop aside and run off stage and behind the backdrop is revealed 25 classically dressed ushers. Like, you know, the old school usher uniform, the red kind of suit with Mm. the little uh, pillbox hat. Mm -hmm. And they all are in one long line and they start doing kick line dancing like the Rockets. Mm -hmm. And um, they sing this song about how life can be grand from the third row and whenever you're down in the dumps, just put on Judy's red pumps and go to the movie picture show and it's like, (laughs) hooray, and then they run off and the backdrop lifts again. And finally, finally, you know we're getting to the big finish because there's no more walls, like they're at the last wall. There's no Mm. more backdrops to be revealed. And... um, this is just like a black sort of wall with stars on it. And then all the ushers are singing hooray for Hollywood. And then in the center of the stage appears Snow White and she has, and she's like stationary, like stuck still. Mm. And um, on top of her head is a giant. And I mean like car sized, like giant model (laughs) of Grauman's Chinese theater on top of her head. (laughs) And you can tell that it's not actually the actress who'd been playing Snow White. I'm pretty sure it's a male stuntman, the only one who was strong enough to have this massive thing because it looks like a man in Snow White makeup. And so there's this giant Groman's Chinese theatre and then like all these um, Oscars, giant Oscars get wheeled out onto the stage and these two staircases come together, cover up Snow White. So it's like, oh, bye, Snow. And then Mm. there's, there's a staircase to where the door of the Grauman's Chinese Theatre is, which, by the way, is uh, presumably still on Snow White's head. She's just behind the <laughs> stairs they've just wheeled in front of her. Mm. The door opens. And <laughs> and then <laughs> out walks... <laughs> out walks Lily Tomlin. <laughs> so she's... 
she's waving. And you can tell the whole crowd because Lily's a comedian. She's funny. And you can tell the whole crowd is like, oh, thank God we're safe. Lily's here. Like, yeah, she'll take care of this. <laughs> and so she walks down the stairs, which is all presumably still on top of Snow White's tiny body. Mm. And as she's, she's like the first presenter of the evening. So you're like, oh my God, thank God. And she walks over to the microphone and she says, well, I told them I'd be thrilled to do the Oscars if they could just come up with an entrance. And everyone laughs. laughs. It's a great Mm. line. And you're like, oh, thank God the shtick is over. But then one final bit of shtick. As she was walking down the stairs, I don't think a lot of people noticed that she kicked one of her shoes off. So it was kind of like the princess leaving her shoe on the stairs. Mm. But it's kind of weird because it's the kind of thing that you don't expect on TV. Like you think, oh, God, was that an accident? Like did Mm. did her shoe just fall off? Like it was strange. And then she's standing there about to present and all of a sudden from the Grauman's Chinese Theatre, so from the top of the staircase she just walked down, a figure appears on its stomach in a white shirt kind of crawling with its arms like that girl from The Ring. Like, you know how she crawls like that? And I was watching it. The first time I watched it, I was like, is this like, oh, shit, they need to move the camera. Like some poor dancer's Mm. broken his leg and he's trying to haul himself off stage (laughs) and who knows what's going on. Like, and But then it turns out it's Rob Lowe and he's like hauling himself down the stairs, crawling on his stomach with his arms like the girl from The Ring. And mm-hmm. it's all for this one final sticky gag where he reaches Lily Tomlin's shoe. She turns around. He's meant to throw it to her. And I think she's meant to catch it and put her shoe on. But he mm-hmm. throws it and it just like just goes wildly off into the audience, probably whacks someone <laughs> in the head. <laughs> and <laughs> Lily Tomlin, who I read later, this wasn't a scripted line. Mm. She turns to the camera, looks so unimpressed, and her line was, and to think a billion and a half people just watched that, like that was her line. But she turned to the camera and went, and to think a billion and a half people just watched that, and now they're trying to make sense of it. (laughs) And then everyone in the room kind of started laughing like, oh, my God, Lily, Lily's here. We're good. It's over. And so that was the opening 12 minutes (laughs) Of what is considered the most embarrassing Oscars moment of all time. <gasps> wow. No wonder Rob Lowe got sober immediately after that. He was posting well, on Instagram the other day that he's been sober for 30 years. Well, there was something a few weeks later that he got sober because of, but we'll talk about that. Um, oh. That night, it was immediately considered a disaster. Um, mm. The next day, people turned their backs on the producer when he went to lunch. Like he went to lunch at a Hollywood Society restaurant and people physically turned their backs to him. The reviews were brutal. The New York Times declared the show had earned a permanent place in the annals of Oscar embarrassments. A week later, Disney sued the Academy because they'd used Snow White and made an embarrassment out of her (laughs) and they hadn't asked permission. Then, a day after Disney sued, 17 of the most prominent actors in Hollywood, including Julie Andrews, Billy Wilder and Gregory Peck, penned an open letter to the Academy in which they said... 
The 61st Academy Awards show was an embarrassment to both the Academy and the entire motion picture industry. It is neither fitting nor acceptable that the best work in motion pictures be acknowledged in such a demeaning fashion. We urge the President and Governors of the Academy to ensure that future award presentations reflect the same standard of excellence as that set as that is set by the films and filmmakers they honour. And so after that, an official awards presentation review committee was put together to figure out how it was such a tacky disaster. So how did this happen? (laughs) Do you want to know? I have been dying to ask from the very beginning who was steering this ship. Yeah. Who was steering this ship was a man called Alan Carr quite a prominent uh, producer in Hollywood up until that point, mm. openly gay um, and pr- probably the only <laughs> openly gay producer of his level of, of uh, clout at the time. He was very camp, mm-hmm. very flamboyant, wore caftans everywhere he went. He was known for throwing amazing parties, being a real society person in Hollywood and also produced and directed a little musical film you might have heard of called Grease. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> So he knew how to make good stuff. But here's the thing with Carr. His style was super out there, big and campy. So his work was pretty hit and miss. Like he had as many Mm. flops as he had hits. So he had Grease, but he also did We Can't Stop the Music, the autobiographical movie about the village people, which bombed, even though I quite like that movie. But there you go. Um, He produced the first Broadway musical version of La Cage à Folle, which won a gazillion Tonys and is still performed today. But he Mm -hmm. also produced Grease 2. Again, one of my favourite movies. I don't know what this says about my taste. (laughs) (laughs) But that was also known to be a huge flop. So the thing with Alan Carr is he was great with spectacle. So he also produced ad campaigns and premiere parties for movies. He kind of came up with the concept of turning premieres into massive parties that could drum up a lot of publicity. So he did all the premieres for Saturday Night Fever. Like it was his idea Mm -hmm. to turn those into big disco parties and he sort of got all the publicity for that going. It was his idea to have Olivia Newton-John turn up as the straight lace Sandy to the red carpet of Greece and then to change into the hot pink leather sandy for the after party of the Grease premiere, which Mm. got so much press. And like Mm. that was, he sort of changed the way photo ops and spectacle got people excited about movies. So people started hiring to do all their premieres and ad campaigns and stuff. But Mm -hmm. then by 1989, it had been a while since Carr had had a hit movie or musical. Um, And he's offered the job of creating and producing the 1989 Oscars ceremony, which he said has been his major dream his entire life. It doesn't pay anything. You're meant to do it for the honour of doing it. Um, But he figures it'll be the perfect thing to get him back on the map. Now, the opening number was the way it was because he based it on the classic review format. Do you know what, like, Mm. a review is? So a review Uh, is like... They do them in high schools and they do them at universities. Like um, the Sydney Uni Law Review is one of the most famous reviews we have in Australia. It's where like people get Mm. together, have something with a very loose narrative, like a girl turns up in the city and meets a bunch of people on the way and you basically do what he did. You change the lyrics to a bunch of popular songs, usually Mm. with like funny lyrics that reflect you make satirical comments of things at the time. So if you were doing a review at the moment, you'd maybe 
take the lyrics of an Ariana Grande song and say something funny about Trump or ScoMo or whatever. And then there's little skits and yep. little acting bits. It's kind of like it's kind of like a high school play. I mean, we did a lot of that kind of thing at yeah. drama school, remember? Yeah. 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 The smacks of that. <laughs> exactly. Um, but um, there were some people doing reviews that, you know, were really well done and were making, like, um, quite a lot of waves. And so there was a very cult-famous review that started in the 70s in San Francisco called Beach Blanket Babylon. And it's all about Snow White looking for her Prince Charming and it still runs today. So he decided to base his Oscars opening number on Beach Blanket Babylon because he loved it so much. But it's kind of the thing I, I mean, this is me, this is my opinion, kind of the thing you do for a fun, cringy night of dinner and drinks and hilarity. It's not the kind of thing that really translates to the stage at, the Oscars, but he seemed mm. determined to make it work. I think it's no. also the problem was that reviews were part of a theatre subculture that not a lot of people were aware of. Like if you were super into theatre and you were a theatre nerd, you would understand what reviews were. Like they were silly, mm. they're meant to be funny, they're kind of like pantomimes. Um, also, and a lot of people say this has something to do with it, it wasn't just a theatre subculture thing. It was a gay subculture thing. Reviews were mm. very campy. They were very, um, uh, like, ostentatious and flamboyant. There was a lot of drag in them a lot of the time. So it was something mm. that the gay community had really embraced, but it hadn't really become mainstream. So a lot of people did say when the Oscars had this big backlash that um, it was super, it was, like, because of homophobia, but then a lot of people were mm. just like, no, it's just a really bad show. <laughs> that's, you know, <laughs> up for debate. Um, so he, that's what he based it on. He based it on these classic review shows, particularly this one called um, Blanket Beach Blanket Babylon, which he was convinced would translate and be really funny and people would get that it's meant to be funny and silly. But I don't know if they did. Um, Eileen Bowman was the woman who played Snow White. And she gives a pretty mm. great breakdown of how the show came together. So she was 22. <laughs> she had just arrived in Hollywood from San Diego to try and make it. And mm. she thought she was auditioning for a new Hollywood-based version of Beach Blanket Babylon. And she's like, I'm a drama kid. I know what that is. It'll be cool. So she mm. was given 15 pages of music to learn. She sang for some people who then said, we need to see if you fit in this dress. She tried on this Snow White dress. She fit in it. So then they dressed her up in the full Snow White makeup and everything. And they took her out to this car. And there was another girl dressed as Snow White already sitting in the car. So she was like, oh, okay, I think it's down to the two of us. They got driven mm -hmm. to Alan Carr's house. They both sang for him. And at the end of the day, she was offered the part. And then they were like, do you know what this is for? And she said, Beach Blanket Babylon. And they said, no, this is for the Oscars. And it's in two weeks. <laughs> and she was like, whoa. <laughs> Um, mm. she, so they went into like lockdown rehearsals. No one was allowed in. She said she was feeling like it wasn't that good, but she was like, well, what do I know? I'm 22 and I yeah. just got here and that's Alan Carr. So, okay. She mm. said, Rob Lowe seemed to know that things were bad. Like he told her at the dress rehearsal, be careful after this. There are sharks in the water. And she mm. was like, oh God. And sort of, he knew that he couldn't sing and she felt really overwhelmed. So they kind of bonded um, but they both kind of knew this isn't, this isn't going to go well. Uh -huh. um, she said her only instruction when walking through the audience 
was to go up to people and, and try and get them to interact with you as part of the song. And the only rule she had was don't go up to Robin Williams because he's very unpredictable. But the problem was <laughs> she was walking from the back, which means she could only see the back of people's heads. So the first mm. person she went up to was Robin Williams. And no. you can see in the video he turns to look at her, she looks shocked and just quickly walks off. Like it's this bizarre <laughs> moment. She's like, that's why I did that because they told me do not talk to him. Um, she says that Tom Hanks and Martin Landau both gave her looks of, oh, you can do this, honey, just get through it. Um, yeah. Martin Landau later commented um, that he really felt for her because when he looked into her eyes, she had a look of pain on her face. And people have said that he is the only person in the audience who seemed to um, interact with her and be kind to her. And he said, well, because it wasn't her fault, I really empathised with her. It was painful to watch. Um, oh, bless you. She said, Michelle Pfeiffer, they didn't show it on camera, but she literally snatched her hand away from her and refused to um, <laughs> do it. Um, and she said when she got up on stage and first locked eyes with Rob Lowe, they both looked at each other like, we're effed. This was a mistake. <laughs> um, Rob Lowe said the first person he saw in the crowd was Barry Levinson, the incredibly respected director who was nominated for Rain Man that night. And Rob mm. saw Levinson go, what the f*** is this? <laughs> and then Rob was like, oh, my God, this is bad. But he was only at the start of like 11 more minutes. Marvin Hamlish, who organised all the music, was mm -hmm. down in the orchestra pit and he said it was obvious within 30 seconds that it was bad. He said, we knew we were hemorrhaging. It was a disaster, but we had to keep going. Um, he also said later that... Uh, Alan Carr was so set on the beach, blank, beach Blanket Babylon thing, people tried to sort of gently steer him in other directions, but he was convinced mm. that it would translate and it would be funny. There was also, and I just want to mention here, another number in the show that if the opening number hadn't been such a disaster, this other number would be considered the most embarrassing number <laughs> to ever go down in Oscars history. But it's kind of been protected by the fact the opening of the show was so bad. So about halfway through the show, Lucille Ball, in her last ever public appearance, she died a month later and people said they think she thought it was funny to die and say it was because she was so embarrassed by these Oscars <laughs> because she was a comedian until the end. <laughs> Lucille Ball comes out and Bob Hope comes out and they're hilarious and great. They're sort of presenting together and they have about five minutes of doing jokes off each other and it's just like real old school classic comedians. And then it um, turns out that they're there to introduce a musical number called I Want to Be an Oscar Winner, which was a song and dance number performed by up-and-coming actors and actresses in Hollywood. Oh. Do you want me to read the list of some of the people who are in this number? Can I guess first? Go, try. 1989, um, up-and-coming actors and actresses. River Phoenix. No, but someone similar to him. Uh, uh, Johnny Depp. Christian Slater. Charlie Sheen. Oh, Christian Slater. <laughs> Christian Slater. Patrick Dempsey. Corey Feldman. Jolie Fisher. Ricky Lake. No. Um, Chad Lowe, uh, Rob's brother. Yeah. Um, Blair Underwood, very sexy now. Melora Harden. Um, they're probably all the ones you would know. 
Mm. Patrick O'Neill, Corey Parker, Keith Coogan. I don't know who. It's sort of like half-half. They went on to be famous and they went on to not really do anything. And I, I won't barely give you the whole recognized thing. half the names you said in the first part anyway. Yeah. I won't give you the whole thing, but um, it opens with Blair Underwood standing at a podium like he's just won an Oscar and he's going like, he's singing this song like, someday I'll be the one. And then like all these kids come running out and my favourite line was, gee, but it's great to be an Oscar winner, a super duper, super trooper Oscar winner. <laughs> that was basically, and that minute, that song and dance number went for like six minutes mm. of all these kids. And so that was bad too. And mm-hmm. you should also, I highly recommend, go and look up that number. If Absolutely. anything, just to see Ricky Lake and Patrick Dempsey dancing around as 16-year-olds. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Um Aileen Bowman, uh, the uh, Eileen Bowman, the Snow White, said backstage uh, mm. most people would barely look at her, so she knew the writing was on the wall. And after the show, they wanted her to go to the governor's ball with Rob Lowe, and she was like, no effing way, get me out of here, I'm leaving. Um, so mm. she went to her sister's house that night, and when she woke up the next morning, there was a lawyer on the doorstep at 8 a.m. asking her to sign a non-disclosure agreement saying she wasn't allowed to talk about anything to do with the show for 13 years. <laughs> <laughs> so they already knew it was bad too. Um, Rob Lowe the next day released a statement saying he had never really wanted to do it, but, you know, when the Oscars come knocking and you're a young actor in Hollywood, he said he used the words, quote, I was being a good soldier. He's um, since sort of made fun of it, um, but most people Mm -hmm. forgot he was even in it because a month later was when his sex tape came out um, with a teenager, and that's the thing that he stopped him from drinking. Oh, I haven't heard about You can give me the gist of that another time. Oh, yes, no, Rob... Rob Lowe, when he was 24, was uh, in a sex tape with a 16-year-old and that was that came out a month after this Oscar ceremony. So it kind of like made people forget he was ever Snow White's date but for like a worse reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't a great – 1989 was not a great year for Rob Lowe. No kidding. That is not mm-hmm. the Chris Traeger I know and love. I know. Alan Carr that night apparently Mm. thought it had gone amazing. So he was watching (laughs) from the sidelines, like when they were doing Proud Mary, he was like, they're killing it. He was so excited. He was wearing like a um, a, a glitter tuxedo, like he dressed up for the night. Um, And he was confused about why Eileen didn't want to go to the parties. Like he was like, of course you would want to go to the parties. You were the star of the show. And she was like, get me out of here. And it wasn't until he got to the after parties and started talking to people that he realised it hadn't quite landed the way he thought it had landed. Mm. Um, The next day, (laughs) he eventually, after about an hour, asked his publicist to take him home because he could feel the energy in the room that he was in trouble. Um, Mm. The next day he woke up and there were no phone calls from anyone that usually get a phone call from the head of the academy saying thank you and whatever. Mm. so he, he thought, okay, you know what? No, I think it went well. I'm going to go to lunch. And that's when he went to lunch at that restaurant that day and people physically turned their backs on him. Um, oh. Two of his friends came to his house to see him that afternoon and he was drunk and alone and crying in his pool house. 
He never got another job producing anything in Hollywood ever again. He became a recluse and died 10 years later of liver failure because he started drinking and taking drugs really heavily after this happened. Oh, no. I know. (laughs) Isn't that really effing awful? Um, Why were there no checks in place? Why was no one watching the rehearsals to... I think they were, and I think, I I honestly think that if it had been maybe like two minutes and not ten minutes, it could have been quite funny. But I do Mm. really think that he thought it would land in the satirical way he thought it would. Like, I think he thought it was obvious satire, but people Mm. at the Oscars, they're not expecting satire they're expecting a fancy show particularly back then I think satire would maybe even land a little bit better now but like he I think people in the audience were just like what is this are we meant to laugh at them or is this meant to be funny like of course it was meant to be funny it was meant to be camp Mm. and silly and funny and ridiculous and I think he thought that would land and I think he convinced everyone else it would land even though people have since come out and said, oh, well, I wasn't sure. And it's like, well, yeah, you can say that now. But um, I just think he took a chance and it didn't, it just didn't land the way he thought it would. But it could, imagine if it had. Yeah. Imagine <laughs> if it had. <laughs> I mean, it would have gone down in legend as, you know, the best Oscars ever. If only it had been a better audience than it was. But I will say, and I want to end on the fact that he was very good at his job. And a lot of people Mm. say that if it hadn't been for that 12 minute opening number, it actually was a really amazing and a really amazing Oscars ceremony. Um, He introduced a bunch of stuff that is still used today. So first of all, he gave Billy Crystal 10 minutes to do a monologue that was so good. Billy Crystal went on to host the Oscars like a gazillion times. Mm-hmm. Um, he introduced the red carpet as a show in itself. So before mm-hmm. the red carpet wasn't even, it was literally just a thing where stars would get out of their car. Someone would take a photo for the newspaper and they'd go inside. He was like, mm-hmm. no, let's televise the red carpet. Let's make it part of the show. Let's make it pre-show stuff. So he's the reason that that's now a huge part Definitely. of it. Um, he, uh, didn't use a host. They did go back to using a host the next year. But up until then, presenters had just been, you know, like one person and it was the person who had won the award the year before or like just some Mm -hmm. boring person, like Jenny from accounting at the Academy office. Like, but he was the person who decided we can make presenters interesting and funny. So he came up with this system called couples, companions, co-stars or compadres. And that's Mm. still used today where you have an interesting combination of presenters who come out and present awards. Mm -hmm. Um, He also... Um, was the person who decided to make backstage a spectacle. So he turned mm-hmm. backstage, like he put couches and furniture and drinks back there. So that's a huge part of the show. And he was the person who decided to use the phrase and the Oscar goes to rather than and the winner is. So that was his idea mm-hmm. as well. So he mm. brought all these elements of spectacle tonight to the night that the ceremony needed because it was really stuffy mm. and boring and and he made it fun and lively and amazing he just might have pushed it a little too far in the first 12 minutes. <laughs> that was it. Maybe just maybe a few less dancing tables. Uh, yeah, yeah, and 
give poor Snow White a little bit of a break. And I know. Let Rob Lowe play to his strengths instead of trying to get him to sing him something trying that was to sing. well out of his range. And it's I didn't realize that Chris Traeger, Rob Lowe's character in Parks and Recreation. I didn't realise that Chris Traeger being such a terrible singer was actually a throwback joke to his appearance at the 1989 <gasps> Oscars. Oh, my God, of course it is. Yes, <laughs> because Rob Lowe is a terrible, terrible singer. I cannot describe it to you. I could not do it justice. You've got to go watch for yourself. So that was the 1989 Oscars, otherwise known as the most embarrassing worst Oscars in history. That was so great and I am absolutely <laughs> dying to watch these video clips. Tell me you're going to put the links in the show notes for this week. Yes, I'll put. There is so much cool. You can go down a rabbit hole. I've got about 50 tabs on my computer right now, but I'll put the links in the show notes to both those musical numbers. Mm. Um, but also my favourite thing to read was eventually, you know, once her gag or her 13-year gag order from 8 a.m. Yeah. the morning after the Oscars <laughs> was over. The woman who played Snow White did a great interview about everything that happened with her. Mm. Um, uh, did she ever go on to work again, by the way? She did works ever now. Get work? Oh, she works now just in like a local theatre in her hometown. Apparently she has a regular part in a dinner theatre show and she just after that said she <laughs> just was so done with the whole thing. She said her sister said to her like, um, oh, my God, like a million people would kill for that opportunity. Like don't go home. Stay in Hollywood. Take advantage. And she mm. said no. And she went, she literally went home the next day. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. She just Imagine didn't want to. Imagine the PTSD she must experience when anyone she said she was Snow just White or sitting any one there. of the Seven Dwarves. Yeah, she said she was just sitting there watching the news the next day, people just making fun of her, like, oh. and it just went on for weeks. Just so bad. Oh, just so awful. Oh. She said the one good thing to come out of the night was when she came backstage to her makeup room, Olivia Newton-John was sitting at her mirror using her blush and um, Olivia Newton-John was her famous, her most favourite star in the whole world, so she still has the blush mm. compact to this day. She kept it. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there's a bunch of great, like there's a really good oral history from um, Los Angeles magazine. There's uh, interviews with Rob Lowe who finally agreed to talk about it. Like a lot of people in the last few years have finally sort of admitted that the whole thing was silly. Even the Oscars have um, come out and said, you know, we think this is a really important part of Oscars history and we're glad that people are talking mm. about it and, you know, whatever. So mm -hmm. they're all just kind of embracing the <laughs> hilarity of it now. So oh, I'll yeah, put it all in the show notes. <laughs> but they, ref they refused to lean into it for years. They pretended that mm. it never happened all those old stars got really mad. There was a committee to see what went wrong. It was just like, what went wrong is, it was tacky. But mm -hmm. I got to say, I loved it. But I also loved mm. We Can't Stop the Music and Grease too. So I feel like yes. Alan Carr was making an Oscar ceremony for me. Mm -hmm. um, and how did you feel about the Oscar ceremony hosted by Anne Hathaway and James Franco? Well, I mean, people have said that that one and the one with Seth MacFarlane singing We Saw Your Boobs were the next two most embarrassing Oscars things that ever happened. So, mm -hmm. 
But did you enjoy the Anne and James spectacular? No, I thought it was painful to watch. Uh, okay. I thought it was Beyond very, very campy painful. fun, just... Yeah. Okay, problematic. I think, and that is, again, when they were going for campy, silly fun and it didn't quite mm. land. I think the Oscars right. need to be a mixture of prestige and glamour and a really whip-smart, funny comedian who makes a little bit of fun. And that mm-hmm. is the combo you need for the Oscars. So mm-hmm. I say this knowing one day I will sit there and win one. So that is the standard <laughs> I expect when I am there. <laughs> uh, <sighs> anyway, okay. so there's something you can um, tell your friends when you finally go to a dinner party. You can give them a blow-by-blow account of the worst, most embarrassing Oscars in history. I loved that. My cheeks hurt so much. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm exhausted. I feel like I just did a whole musical, <laughs> a one-woman <gasps> show. <laughs> oh, and my eyes water at the thought of anything embarrassing. And i got to tell you, they were watering like mad throughout that whole thing. It was like I'd squeezed a lemon in them. <sighs> Amazing. <sighs> anyway. All Mortifying. right. Wow. That's that. That was your well done, little love. present because we uh, missed out last week. So <laughs> love you all. God bless. Graciously received. Stay safe. Thank you, Under his eye. Bye. Listener.